class, Nurse Kylie here. We are back for part two of our respiratory discussion. This week, we are going to take what we learned last week about the various respiratory modalities and apply them to nursing when caring for patients with various respiratory problems. As always, this week's discussion is facilitated by Chapter 23 of Bruner and Stuttart's Textbook of Medical Surgical Nursing by Hankel and Cheever. Let's begin. Atelectasis is a term that refers to the closing or collapse of the alveoli. This can happen with several different respiratory issues and can be caused by mucus buildup, chronic airway obstruction, or shallow breathing. The patient will demonstrate an increase in work trying to breathe and will show hypoxemia. A chest x-ray usually confirms atelectasis even before symptoms arise. Prevention of atelectasis is a direct reflection upon the nurse's work with the patient. Frequent turning, early mobilization, and respiratory hygiene modalities are all used to help prevent this from occurring in the first place. The one qualifier is that the patient must be alert and cooperative, which can hinder use when the patient doesn't meet these requirements. At times, suction, physiotherapy, nebulizer treatments, and even bronchoscopy are needed to help with ventilation and prevent atelectasis. A common strategy used is the ICOF program, which is an acronym for nurse-led interventions. I is for incentive spirometry. C is for coughing and deep breathing. O is for oral care. U is for understanding, which includes patient education. G is for getting out of bed at least three times per day. H is for head of bed elevation. This program was developed by Boston University School of Medicine and has been adapted by many organizations. These strategies help to prevent atelectasis as well as other more invasive types of conditions such as respiratory infections, which we'll get into now. Acute tracheobronchitis is an acute infection that causes inflammation of the trachea and bronchial tree and often occurs after an upper respiratory tract infection. Treatment aims at reducing the inflammation so that it does not continue further into the respiratory tract. Antibiotics may be used depending on the sputum culture. Important aspects of care include increasing fluid intake to thin secretions, bronchial hygiene, and positioning the patient in a manner that promotes both comfort and ventilation. Frequent rest periods for ADLs is also required, as this type of infection can be exacerbated by overactivity. Pneumonia is inflammation of the lung parenchyma caused by a multitude of organisms. It is classified into four types, community-acquired, or CAP, healthcare-associated, HCAP, hospital-acquired, HAP, and ventilated-associated, VAP. Here's a quick breakdown of the differences. Community-acquired pneumonia occurs in the community or greater than 48 hours after hospital admission or institutionalization of patients who do not meet the criteria for HCAP. Healthcare-associated pneumonia occurs in a non-hospitalized patient with extensive healthcare contact with one or more of the following either hospitalization for greater than two days in an acute care facility within 90 days of the infection, residence in a nursing home or long-term care facility, antibiotic therapy or chemotherapy, or even wound care within 30 days of current infection, hemodialysis treatment at a hospital or clinic, home infusion or home wound care, 
and or a family member with infection due to multidrug resistant bacteria. Hospital-acquired pneumonia is pneumonia occurring greater than 48 hours after hospital admission that did not appear to be incubating at the time of admission. Ventilator-associated pneumonia is a type of HAP that develops greater than 48 hours after ET tube intubation. Regardless of the type, there are a few complications that could arise, including shock and respiratory failure, as well as pleural effusion. Typically, these occur in patients that have not yet received treatment, but can also occur when therapy has begun, but the organism is resistant. Patients with comorbidities are also at a higher risk due to the pathophysiology of their disease process and how it relates to the process of pneumonia. Another type of pneumonia is aspiration pneumonia, which can develop after aspiration or the inhalation of a foreign material into the lungs. Aspiration can occur when the protective airway reflexes are diminished, either due to a seizure, brain injury, stroke, decreased level of consciousness from trauma, drugs, anesthesia, as well as flat body positioning, dysphagia, and cardiac arrest. There are several nursing considerations for preventing aspiration. Positioning is key, as keeping the head of the bed elevated can reduce the risk. Sedatives should only be used as needed. Confirmation of tube placement before feedings or medication administration, as well as an unscheduled basis, is crucial. Bolus feeding should be avoided in those who are high aspiration risks. Advocate for swallow evaluations prior to initiating oral feedings, as well as maintain proper ET cuff pressures and PNC. To further expand upon the lungs, let's talk pleural conditions. These conditions involve the membranous covering of the lungs and the surface of the chest wall. Pleurisy, or pleuritis, is the inflammation of both pleural layers and can develop due to pneumonia, upper respiratory tract infection, TB, chest trauma, pulmonary infarction, pulmonary embolus, cancer, and can happen post-thoracotomy. Since the pleura contain nerve endings, this is a painful condition. Patients often describe it as a severe, sharp, knife-like pain. If the pain begins to diminish, well, suspect a buildup of fluid, as the fluid will coat the nerve endings, thus reducing friction and subsequent pain associated with that friction on the nerve endings. As the nurse, pain medication, treatment for causation, and comfort measures are imperative. Splinting is often used to help reduce the discomfort the patient may feel during coughing. Now, the fluid buildup is called a pleural effusion and is mainly a secondary process that occurs due to another disease process. If the fluid amount is great, a thoracentesis will be performed to remove it as well as send for cytopathology. For a thoracentesis, the nurse positions the patient in a comfortable position and offers support. Now, the fluid buildup is called a pleural effusion and is mainly a secondary process that occurs due to another disease process. If the fluid amount is great, a thoracentesis will be performed to remove it as well as send for cytopathology. For a thoracentesis, the nurse positions the patient in a comfortable position and offers support. According to Hinkle, respiratory failure is a sudden and life-threatening deterioration of the gas exchange function of the lung and indicates failure of the lungs to provide adequate oxygenation or ventilation of the blood. Chronic respiratory failure is the deterioration of the lungs, but over time, and includes respiratory 
acidosis rather than acute symptoms. COPD in neuromuscular diseases are often causes of chronic respiratory failure. In acute respiratory failure, ventilation is impaired due to a mechanism such as an impaired CNS, like from a drug overdose, or neuromuscular degeneration, such as ALS, musculoskeletal dysfunction, such as chest trauma, or pulmonary dysfunction, such as COPD. The nurse caring for these patients is focused on maintaining adequate perfusion and ventilation. The patient's level of responsiveness, arterial blood gases, pulse oximetry, and vital signs are continuously assessed as the patient is most likely ventilated. ARDS, ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, is an umbrella term for a multitude of disorders ranging from acute lung injury to life-threatening ARDS. The culprit is usually severe inflammation that causes alveolar damage, which results in sudden, progressive pulmonary edema that continues to build. Risk factors include aspiration, drug overdose, hematologic disorders, prolonged inhalation of high concentrations of oxygen, smoke, or corrosive substances, localized infection, metabolic disorders, shock, trauma, major surgery, fat or air embolus, and sepsis. The initial presentation of the patient mimics severe pulmonary edema but quickly turns into severe dyspnea. As the patient is critically ill, nursing considerations are everything that we can do, including all the modalities we discussed last week. Pulmonary hypertension, or PH, develops when pulmonary arterial pressure and secondary rate heart ventricular failure occurs. It is often suspected when patients complain of dyspnea with exertion without any other symptoms. Pulmonary pressures cannot be measured directly, unlike systemic blood pressure. Other symptoms include weakness, fatigue, syncope, occasional hemoptysis, and signs of right-sided heart failure. Take a moment to think about what that means. Identification of this disease and identifying those at high risk are the primary nursing considerations. High-risk patients include those with COPD, PE, congenital heart disease, and mitral valve disease. Why the mitral valve? Think about that for a minute. Another item of importance regarding pH is core pulmonal, which develops due to pH. The right side of the heart enlarges due to the increased workload required to pump against the resistance through the pulmonary vasculature. Pulmonary embolism, or PE, is the obstruction of the pulmonary artery or one of its branches by a thrombus or thrombi that originates elsewhere in the body and is commonly a medical emergency. DVTs can contribute to this as the thrombus can break into pieces, with that piece becoming lodged in the pulmonary artery. Symptoms depend on the size of the clot and area that's occluded. Prevention is vital for those at risk for PE. This includes leg exercises for those who sit a lot or are immobile, early ambulation, and use of anti-embolism stockings. The last bit of our discussion will focus on chest traumas. More than a fifth of all trauma cases are chest traumas, according to the American College of Surgeons. Blunt thoracic trauma is responsible for a quarter of all trauma deaths. The most common causes of blunt chest trauma are car accidents, falls, and bicycle crashes. Since all thoracic structures are most likely affected, these can be very serious injuries. It is vital to secure a patent airway, reduce blood loss, and help stabilize the patient. Sternal and rib fractures are common with these types of injuries, so the lungs need to be examined for any punctures that would create a pneumothorax. Flail chest is a complication of blunt chest trauma, usually from a steering wheel injury. 
This occurs when three or more adjacent ribs are fractured at two or more sites, resulting in free-floating rib segments. During inspiration, the chest expands in the detached part of the rib, aka flail segment, moves in a paradoxical manner that is pulled in, which decreases the amount of air that can be inhaled. Due to this, nursing care focuses on ventilation support. Pulmonary contusion is a common thoracic injury that is associated with flail chest and occurs when there is damage to the lung tissue, causing a hemorrhage with edema. This condition can be life-threatening as oxygenation is compromised. Penetrating trauma was hinted at earlier with the introduction of pneumothorax as a complication due to blunt thoracic trauma. Penetrating injuries can cause injury to the lungs, which can create pressure discrepancies inside of the thoracic cavity. This can cause the lung to collapse. A simple pneumothorax is when air enters the pleural space through a breach in the pleura. This can occur due to a disease process, such as severe emphysema, but I have also seen this occur in otherwise healthy males who vape. A traumatic pneumothorax occurs when air escapes from a lung laceration and enters the pleural space or from a chest wall wound. This can be due to being stabbed or shot or from having rib fractures. This usually turns into a hemothorax where blood collects in the pleural space. A tension pneumothorax occurs when air is drawn into the pleural space from a lung laceration or a small opening wound in the chest and the air becomes trapped. The trapped air causes the lung to collapse and the heart, great vessels, and trachea shift to the unaffected side. This is called a mediastinal shift. Nursing management depends on the type of the pneumothorax and what has been ordered for treatment by the provider. Often, chest tubes are inserted to help re-expand the lung and or remove blood caused by a hemothorax. The nurse would manage the chest tube and ensure the patient has adequate perfusion by providing supplemental oxygen. As someone who worked in cardiothoracic surgery, I have seen my fair share of chest tubes, thoracentesis procedures, and wounds. Care really comes down to the basics and, if possible, prevention. It's amazing how the cardiac and respiratory systems function together and affect one another. When faced with a problem, the key is to understand its physiology and how it will affect other systems so that you can prepare for and hopefully prevent complications. This goes for all conditions, symptoms, and nursing care. Keep the basics in mind, and until next time, keep on accelerating.